futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In episode 129 of the podcast, the topic is how executives handle crisis. Our guest is Stephanie Malik, host of the Spin It podcast and founder at Smalik Enterprises. In this conversation, they talk about how Stephanie came to do what she does and her unique experience of serial crisis manager. How do you define and what do you define as a business crisis? What are the strategies to use to best handle it? The intricate and unknown backstories that unfold in executive life and how to help resolve the problems that occur. Explore the new course Scale OS from Smolik Enterprises. You will work with award-winning CEO Stephanie Malik to scale your business, tapping into surprising sources of revenue. If you wonder who she is, I know I did. Listen to this episode, How Executives Handle Crisis at futurize.org slash 129. What Stephanie has learned through a tough life and emotional stamina and business acumen, she is teaching you in an accelerated fashion. Find out more about ScaleOS by going to the affiliate link in the show notes and see the code FUTURIZED for a 10% discount. You can also find it at futurized.org slash store. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or you're looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, which we always appreciate, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. They are collections of your favorite episodes organized by topic, such as entrepreneurship, trends, emerging tech, or the future of work. That'll help new listeners get a taste of everything that we do here, starting with a topic they are familiar with or want to go deeper in. The host of this podcast, Trunane Unheim, PhD, is the author of Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, and Leadership from Below. For an overview, go to Tronsbooks at trondunheim.com slash books. At this stage, Futurized is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurized.org slash sponsors. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book him for keynote speeches, please go to futurized.org slash store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure that you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes with conversations that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. 
It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Stephanie, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I am great, and I'm so excited to have this conversation. You know, in preparing for talking to you, um, I had to really understand what you were all about. Uh, and we had this prep call, and I hope that we are able to, I guess, shed some light. Uh, sort of the way that the light went up for me when I understood more uh, who you, you know, what uh, what you are and what you are about. Uh, because the topic today was uh, going to be on, you know, how executives handle crisis. Uh, but way before we get to that, and of course, more important is, you know, who, who's uh, who's behind the curtain here? And I think in this particular instance, at least for me, that was just so clarifying. Um, because there's something about when your ambition is to handle other people's crisis, the question ultimately should become, I think, well, how do you handle crisis? Or, or what, what ha- what's happened to you that makes you fit to deal with this? And, you know, we'll, we'll get into all of that, Stephanie, but I just wanted to, you to explain in your own words, wh- why are you currently where you are with your company? What, what, what is it that has possessed you to put yourself in the enviable but in an immensely difficult position of handling crisis and we'll get to what the kind of crisis you're actually talking about this is not like some everyday crisis that you're dealing with so I'll, I'll just let you take that gosh tron that was like nine questions in one okay no let me it was see. one how did you get <laughs> just, there just one how okay let's see <clears throat> so it's taken me a long time to actually be able to articulate it and feel comfortable with the articulation of what it is. I think people have different gifts and it's really funny because when you said it, I don't really talk about this very much because it sounds like woo woo or it sounds like, it just sounds weird to me. Um, and I know my questions I would ask of others if they came to me with this type of skill set. But I think based in having a life that was immensely filled with trauma and disappointment and scarcity and going into survivor mode at such a young age, I think you become innately intuitive. And I think that you really start looking at all of the things that have not been said. And and again, I can argue this both ways because at the end of the day, I'm a business person. And so sometimes it takes me a long time to actually look at somebody and connect with somebody to their words and what they're saying because I'm observing so many other things, um, their body language, their tonality, their tenor, how other people receive them. And only until about five or six years ago have I gotten really comfortable when they go, hey, Stephanie, what makes you different? What is your, whatever the weird words are, special sauce, secret sauce, whatever the crazy cliche that they're happy to use. What makes you so dynamic? All these other weird things that they say. And really, I think it's my ability to solve and resource very complex issues in an extraordinarily private matter, um, private manner, excuse me, and and also doing it with literally 80% gut 
And it's hysterical, Trond. It's hysterical because you're in a room with with high powered, high impact, two, three, four thousand dollar an hour attorneys, and they're recalling law school and they're recalling case law and they're recalling all these different things. And I'm just sitting back looking at everybody in the room, seeing how everybody is interacting. And nine times out of ten, they go with my solution because my solution is not a law solution. My my solution is all encompassing. It's business, it's personal, it's family, it's future, it's revenue, and it's law. So Stephanie, you shared a lot of things with me, and I'm not sure we're going to rehash all of that conversation, but you had hardship from you were two years old in your intimate family on both sides of your family, to to be honest. You know, your father yes, and your mother were, were real issues here. Um, you started college and then quickly got married, quickly got divorced, and then you entered sort of the Silicon Valley trail as a single mom. Um, but then you somehow emerged from this and started to want to help others in a, in, in a certain sense. What do you think spurred that particular connection? Because I'm imagining that there are a bunch of people out there who are high achievers who have had hardship, but then they turn that inward and become kind of ego drivers and run sort of their own ship. And, you know, you obviously run your own business, so there's success involved, but the kind of thing that you actually do and that you seem to thrive on is fixing things for people. Serious, serious business that we'll get into. Why? Yeah. When did you discover, how early did you discover that, you know, the experiences that you've had compared with, you know, together with maybe your personality and, you know, however you developed, put you in a unique position there? Hmm. So I'm going to take that question in two parts, Trond. I would say the very first one is, again, being completely transparent. I think early, I just didn't trust it. So when I would be in, you know, you've obviously, we've talked about my background, you know my background. When I was in the entry-level sales positions and I would be on a ride-along with my boss or I would be in a peer group, the questions they were asking the clients, I always felt so um, out of place. I, in my head, it would just be like, God, that's a really stupid question. Why would you even ask that? That has nothing to do with anything. Like it never made sense, but I was very quiet about it because I was always the youngest in the room. 90% of the time I was the only woman in the room. And so I was just trying to learn. I was really trying to figure out what am I missing? Cause I would never ask that question. And Trond, the, the, I think the turning point for me was working for a startup company and hearing a lot of commotion in the background, I was in a business development position and I was hearing a lot of commotion in the background from the C-suite about them not being able to close this deal that was a co-technology deal and they couldn't get the deal closed. And I remember, you know, VPs and EVPs and, and early investors. And I remember everybody kind of flying out to this client and this went on for months. And I remember the panic of the gentleman who was our, our leader and he was saying all kinds of explicitives and he was just like, we need, we need to get this done. We need to get this done. And I remember I walked into his room and I said, Hey, will you give me a shot? And he started laughing. And looking back at it now, I, I, I probably sounded like I was wearing my mommy's shoes and, you know, with the big person in a dress up going, can I have a shot? 
you know, but I really, really wanted a shot because I really thought what they were doing was wrong. I thought that they weren't personalizing it. I didn't feel like they were asking the best questions. How can it take, how can a, how can a company need something so much and then it take nine months or a year to close? Like, what are we missing? Why does it always have to be someone else that's missing it? And so I remember I went in there and I asked him and he said, and, and Tron, literally this came flying out of my mouth. Like I'm much more careful now, but I said, just give me a shot. If it doesn't work, you can fire me in 30 days. Single mom, not a pretty look. So he said, I, you have no sales background. You have no this, you have no that. And I said, and you do. And look where we are. And again, came flying out of my mouth. <laughs> so he said, fine, go. He's like, here's your expense account. And it was very, very low. It was very meager for flying to New York. And I got the deal closed in under 30 days. And you know why I got it closed? Because I connected with the people that were running the deal. I understood what was giving him trepidation. I asked hard questions. I noticed that the woman got off the subway and she was late for every meeting. And I met her at the, at the subway station with a, with a coffee, found out that she was recently divorced and she was having to live further away from the city because she had two children and was having a difficult time with transportation. Found out why one of the gentlemen drank scotch at 7.30 in the morning and his office smelled like smoke. I connected with them without trying to sell. So they they ultimately said at the end of the day, it was a $40 million deal. And they said at the end of the day, no matter if it works out or not, we know we'll be able to reach Stephanie. It was about connecting. And that then, and only then, did I actually believe that my questions were good and viable and sustainable and they mattered opposed to just checking a box or ticking a system of, yeah, not a viable prospect, not a viable prospect. I humanized selling. I humanized saying no. There were so many deals I walked away from because Silicon Valley is small. And if you sell somebody something that they don't need, that's going to come back. And I just had no desire to be a part of the noise. Hmm. In another occasion, you told me when you started your own firm in 2002, you walked into Tom Siebel's office and he is not a nobody, right? And you, you instantly basically billed him a large check for your first client. That's also kind of unusual to start a consulting firm on, on a massive check like that. Uh, was that the same process? The, the, the idea that you just walk in and have such clarity that People who could have hired anybody just think, you know, she's the right person to to handle, whether it's a business <clears throat> consulting issue or, or a, you know, a more crisis-related issue. So I want to be fair and I want to do this justice. So um, Tom becoming our first client, I had previous relationship with him from a company I was with before, which was called Actuate. Right. And so we had worked together. Th I, I don't want to say together. He had done a partnership with our firm. And um, it wasn't the best, the best way I can do it, dignity is it wasn't smooth from either side. Um, so I didn't actually go into Tom's office. This was actually over the phone. And I was, I was blessed enough to have a lot of people on his side telling me the things that were happening and knowing that I could actually make a difference. Um, the best way I can answer this question, Trond, Richard Branson said something in like 2000, probably 2000. And I remember, I think it was on a radio show, and I don't remember, 
exactly verbatim or the quote, but I remember him saying this, and this has stuck with me, and this is something that I use all the time. If you truly believe in yourself that you can do it, say yes now and figure out the back end later. And that's what I did. Um, and it's not that we weren't a viable resource. It's not that, and, and, you know, again, in all fairness, he got a great deal. Anybody else, Deloitte, Accenture, IBM, they would have done that deal for way, way, way more than we did. Um, I, I for sure bought the deal, but I didn't need to make a 30 or 40% margin. I just needed to make a margin that was good enough for a family and, and, and make a name for myself to be a trusted thought leader, somebody who is top of mind. And that's how I've run every single firm that I've been a part of bringing in great talent, strategic people, saying no as often as you possibly can whenever something doesn't align. Stephanie, I wanted to get into the real business that you do. Some people have called you fairly or unfairly Olivia Pope. And, you know, for people who don't watch TV and you know, are in Washington circles, she's sort of a TV uh, character of a fixer who fixes the president's and, and other senior people's problems in Washington whenever they're on the wrong side of the law or on the wrong side of some ethical issue. And they needed to not just go away, but sort of be fixed so that they can go on being who they think they are. Now, you told me that a lot of the stuff that you do, you're not really a PR firm. You're not really crisis communications per se. It's not really about the media. So that's where the Olivia Pope thing gets a little wrong because she's all about you know, she then takes control of the media and the narrative exactly. and pull that sort of surface story. But the story on this podcast today that we were sort of going to talk about is kind of the what's on the bottom of the iceberg, the, the, the stuff under the waters. And that's kind of what interests me generally, but certainly in, in this context of a, of a show about the future. Because there's, if there's stuff under the surface that's bigger than what's on top, my theory would be, well, that has some implication for what's going to happen. So white-collar crimes, money laundering, bid rigging, skimming, bribery, I have listed a bunch of white-collar crimes right now. What in the world is all that about? Like, you, you're fascinated by crime and you want to make it go away for people? I mean, wow. it sounds kind of crazy. <laughs> It well, it, it feels kind of crazy too. Um, it doesn't really go away. The the allegations most often remain the same. Sometimes they remain. Sometimes we can get it lesser. Um, you know, sometimes it, it really just depends. It really depends on on what the allegation is. Um, it is fascinating. We move people through their error in judgment differently. We do it out of media, out of paparazzi, you know, depending on if it's an athlete or a celebrity or a high wealth or an executive, we move them through the process of a judgment that they have made that would cause increasing damage to their family and to their reputation. Ultimately, Tron, they still do get a consequence, but they get to go through their consequence without you know, cameras outside their kid's school or, you know, a news station outside of their wife's chemo. Um, they still have the consequence. It's just a lot more discerning. Um, and we follow, one of the differentiators with us is 
we we love to be proactive about this. It is it, yet to happen where we've been able to be proactive. It's always reactive. But we've we are they are kind of before, during, and after for support. So our firm is different because we set up all professional services. Because after you go through such a massive scandal or a scheme or a Ponzi or whatever it happens to be, you're wrecked for a long time. You, you're lacking in trust. You're lacking in confidence. Your family is lacking in, in reputation um, in everything that touches you. There's health issues. There's all kinds of things that happen. And our firm handles all of those partnerships to be able to support and hold space for your family. So let's uh, dig into this, uh, maybe perhaps sort of away from your clients for a moment. Just think about some things that are in the public eye. Um, I mean, Tiger Woods is one that comes to mind. There was somewhat of a crisis there for a while, right? Um, what what was that issue about and how much got out at the right times versus what do you think was actually going on? And, you know, is that, a, is that an example of a situation where, where your service would have been an interesting one to to pursue if you were on either side of of that crisis, and it's I guess still unfolding, right? Because the individuals involved here they're still there, and um, well, it's a long story. But anyway, you know, am I even close to the kinds of things that you could have represented either Tiger or some other women or his ex-wife or I don't know even his sponsors? Like, what wh- is that an ex- a good example of? something that needs a crisis fixer. Absolutely. I mean, that's an amazing example. And because not only not only is it an amazing example, Chand, you really hit all aspects of it. So really, in this case, who would be the hiring party and what would be the measurement of success? And the issue is, is we generally have to pick one because there's conflict. And so really how I, you know, I want, I want to sound, I want to sound very brainy here and give you my giant methodology. It's really, there's no methodology. It's truth and trust. So I will help you if you walk in and you are a thousand percent honest and you've made a mistake. It becomes more difficult as, as Mr. Woods did, where he kept covering and covering and covering. The media was an absolute frenzy. And the reason why they were a frenzy is because the legal advice that he was getting and the business advice he was getting is to pay off and cover up. Um, it's just not how we do. We just don't do things. Um, you know, both fortunately and unfortunately, we live in America. And America is one of the most forgiving um, countries ever. Uh, if you come out and you say it and you state it and it is real and it is honest and it is true and then you go away, everybody stops talking about it because it doesn't matter anymore. It's like it's kind of old news. Something else happens. Um, yeah. I mean, could we have been more strategic as far as the media play? Absolutely. Could we have really done a lot around um, advising? Again, I, yeah, for sure we could. I'm not sure if we would have ever taken him as a client. Um because, um, let's see, how do you say this? I believe that every people, every person has their own version of the truth. Sadly, judges generally like one version of the truth. And so you have to be very careful about who you support and how you, who you are as your reputation. My reputation is everything to me. I don't overpromise and I overdeliver every single time. But you absolutely nailed it. That would be a prime person for moving through a crisis journey much differently than unfolded for him. And as you so eloquently put, continues to unfold for him. 
Well, so let, let I mean, let's leave that example for a second because I think you know. I mean, it, let's that that's that's like its own circle of podcasts. You can go through that, but I just <laughs> we're going to start I, a series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so so that issue uh, at least maybe brings to to mind some of the issues that that we're actually talking about. Uh, the college admission scandal is kind of a different animal, but on the other hand, it's also been out there and it clearly speaks to so many Americans for sure because you know paying for college and getting into college is something every parent goes through. Um, it would seem that also there, th- there are some narratives and there, I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to be on one particular side of that scandal. I mean, you're, you're fighting a really uphill battle there. Is, is that, I mean, let's talk about that for a second. I'm just curious, is this always the case? I mean, that's why you would get hired, right? Because it is an uphill battle. It's like almost a lost battle unless you come up with some secret cards. Well, and again, you know, I, I, I hate to sound like a broken record. I say this all the time. Bad news doesn't get better with time. And the more you spin it and spin it and spin it, people get irritated and they stop fighting for you. So, I mean, I could I could name a bunch of people in this and, and, and I'll refrain from doing that. But let's just talk about one really quick. Felicity Huffman, okay? She interviewed, I think, two or three attorneys when she was going through this. And she got two or three different pieces of advice that is none of our business, Okay. But what she did was she raised her hand, she raised her hand, she signaled early, and I think she was in and out within 10 days. She was working, working within six months. So, so that's a great example. She went out and said, look, white privilege, look, my husband and I, my girls, every single thing I did was wrong. My biggest regret is showing my girls that this was acceptable. That's my biggest regret. And so Whatever her advice was from the people that she sought out, she didn't fight it and she knew what she had done, okay? We could have done that with other people's stories along the way. Our issue was there was so many, okay, there was, there was recordings, there was text messages, there was letters, there was um, personal conversations, and everybody was like, you know, in the, in the crowds, in the groups, everybody was like, wait, what? What's the big deal? I don't, I don't understand. Like, I don't, I mean, so what? It was a donation or so what? It was this or so what? There was no personal responsibility and accountability. And so we have to remember three things, Tron. Number one, we have to remember the people that are in the jury box. We have to remember who is actually hearing the case. Are they going to have privilege? Have they ever been on a private jet? Have they ever seen $250,000? We have to look at socioeconomically. We have to look at morals and their own personal moral compass. And we have to look at who they are and how they have provided for their family or how they've been provided for. Your your uphill battle is an understatement. Pushing a gigantic rock, you know, up mountains and mountains for years, that's what you're doing. If that's the kind of defense that you want, we don't want any part of that. We want a thoughtful, careful, methodical, and and the bottom line, we want a connected response when you're connecting to these potential jurors. So, you know, to answer your question, it is a it is a long, it is a long battle. We haven't even talked about the reputation damage that's happened after these things. And if you look at the people that signaled early, raised their hands, and got an amazing crisis team, they've moved past it and they're already back to work and already making money and revenue and mending and healing their families. 
Well, now you're pointing to some of the outcomes that you're looking for. I was going to ask you, I guess, a slightly different question. What are some of the types of clients that you have taken on and what are some types of clients you would never take on? Because again, like it's just interesting with this ethical straddle that I'm sure, you know, you must be going through, although, you know, you're not in the business of Sunday school here. Yeah. I mean, I think that, so, so we don't do anything around any allegations whatsoever around pedophilia at all. Like nothing, no matter what it is, if you're guilty or you're not, I'm not the right person for you. Um, we don't do anything around, um, around drugs and, and, and rap labels. Um, I would say most of the stuff that we really do is straight white collar contract finance. Um, we do a lot around family law. So usually as a mediator or usually as a negotiation, um, expert, because sometimes the, you know, high wealth or high visibility clients, sometimes, um, I don't want to say get t- gets taken advantage of. I believe sometimes they argue the wrong issue. So you can't fight an emotional argument with a logical plan. It just doesn't work out. Um, so I, we help a lot around those those very visible cases. As far as um, as far as ethically, again, remember the clients do we we generally do get a lesser sentence or a lesser um, conviction. Um, if, if that's the case, um, we just do it privately. So I work with 65 global attorneys, um, all over the world. Um, we have a lot of private judges that we use. Um, most of my counterparts, so most of the attorneys that I hire in to work with these executives or athletes or, or, uh, or, um, celebrities, um, generally they have vast, uh, agency resources, so FBI, SEC, CIA. And so you hire counsel based on their relationships and based on their moral fortitude within the community of where this crisis or crime has taken place. So I feel pretty good about it being private. Here's where it gets a little a little bit skeptical. When you can tell that the person has, like, is generally, like, Tron, they're looking at you and they're like, what? Like, what? And, 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 and you're sitting there in the room and you just, you're, you are like, okay, is Ashton Kutcher going to jump out somewhere and I'm being punked? Like, this is so not rocket science. Like, and you just, and that's where you get, that's where it's funny. One of the attorneys say, you move from being unflappable to literally wanting to flip a table over because I'm so astounded at the lack of self-awareness that like, Buddy, you were required. You were recorded a hundred times saying this. How do you not know? And you know, I've I've been known to maybe nullify their contract and tell them that they need to find somebody else because personal accountability and responsibility. You know, I, I don't know. It's just imperative. Um, I've also helped probably a little longer than I should when there's children involved. Um, I've I've you know, based on, you know, my past and my background, and I have a little bit of a softer heart when they're, when, when children are the collateral damage. Um, and so I probably stay on a little bit longer. I probably give a little bit more than I would normally give, but as a whole Trond, we've really done an exceptional job over the last three years at really having this finite service that we offer that we are getting just, I mean, we're settling 75% faster, um, than a normal court process, 
Um, we're settling out with just really, really happy clients that are so thankful and getting the second chance. And again, one of our key differentiators is seeing them through the behavioral change. So this has happened, okay? And we're done with this part of it. So now what's next for you? How do we rebuild your reputation? How do we rebuild your commitment and your connection to your family? How do we look at other avenues of of revenue? Are you willing to share your story? Like, are we there yet? You know, ripping the Band-Aid off. When can we come back and tell people what you've recovered from, what happened with you, your personal story? Um, We usually stay with a family for a year or two, depending on what the situation is and and how many kind of locations that they're at to make sure everybody feels very well serviced and taken care of. I wanted to bring in one other kind of public example just because it's sort of ongoing now. So Elizabeth Holmes, uh, you know, founder and, and, and former leader of Theranos, the drug diagnostic, supposedly diagnostic company. Um, and the reason... I'm curious about that is a lot of my listeners are are founders and are in the tech industry and there is tremendous pressure to show results early, to scale fast, to become the biggest thing since the biggest thing was ever, you know, like in every industry, you have to be bigger and better than than your opponents. And, and you know, that's very hard. So at much smaller levels, I'm sure that people have wanted to take shortcuts um, but something's stopping them. Others are probably taking shortcuts right now. What, what do you make of that story? How, how is it even possible? And how, um, I don't know. Yeah. What do you make of that story? So I think it's actually interesting how her new team, um, spun the new defense into, um, into, I think it was intimate partner abuse. Right. Yep. Um, and that to me is fascinating. And, you know, in doing this as long as I have, Trond, one of the things that I've taken into deep, deep consideration is, um, especially when I, I mean, you would think I would not be surprised anymore. Like one would think I would just not be surprised anymore. But I also think you have to take into consideration, and I think almost first, second, or third, okay, um, the defendant or the person who has the allegations pending against them, their mental health. So, you know, who are they as a person um, before this intimate partner, before Sonny, okay? Before Sonny, who was Elizabeth before Sonny? Um, what kind of a, a human was she? How connected was she? What, where was her EQ and her self-awareness? You know, what was her personal responsibility and accountability? Um, and I think that you build from there. Here's what I always tell everybody. Shortcuts turn into very long journeys, Um, I believe, and my wholehearted advice in knowing so many venture teams in Silicon Valley, in knowing so many first-time founders, and actually so many first-time founders are our clients. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a different coach. I'm a different consultant. I I, I say hard things that people don't want to hear. Nobody's ever accused me of being a yes man. (laughs) Um, and I will tell you, I say your talent is everything somebody who's going to push back, somebody who's going to tell you no, somebody who's going to do a different, um, more connected pitch to your investors or your possible VCs, somebody who's not going to overpromise and underdeliver. I think people are starting to appreciate, especially in the Valley, especially in New York, I think they're starting to appreciate so much more deeply bootstrapping 
and and cutting um, financial um, kind of niceties, if you will. I think they're starting to really appreciate somebody bootstrapping and doing blood, sweat, and tears. And I think if you have somebody who's really amazing at truthful storytelling, I don't think that anyone, especially in Silicon Valley, when those investors are so incredibly savvy now, I don't think taking a shortcut is right for anyone. I wanted to bring this in, uh, you know, towards the the future and thinking again as this m- metaphor of the iceberg and the the murky things on the on the undercurrents of of the water. What is like if you collectively think about all of the clients and all the experiences you've had working in this overall territory? When I ask others about the future, you know, they will bring in things like, well, you know, in my field of technology, this is what's going on. Or, you know, there are many ways where you can seek evidence for what you think is the disruptive things that are going to happen or or even just reading tea leaves in terms of trends in your own field. What are the trends in white collar crime and fixing of such? And what does that tell you about where we are moving as a Society, as leaders, um, in finance, have you reflected on whether it's going in a certain direction or whether it's pretty constant? I mean, have you made some, for example, prognostications about sort of human nature is what it is kind of a thing? Or do you think things are changing? Can you can you influence these things, make them better or worse? So, first of all, that's an amazing question. And I think that this is this is something reflecting on is so minor of what I do. I, I literally grapple with this because at the end of the day, Tron, I'm a fixer, okay? So how do we make it better? How do we make the process and the procedure better? How do we make it more efficient? How do we make it like I'm constantly running these things through my head? And, and you know, I, I have had amazing privilege to be able to, to sit down with FBI agents or sit down with, you know, prior negotiators or previous CIA. Um, and here's here's the trick, okay? It's not really the trick. Here's the challenge. The challenge is the resources. Um, I don't think, for let's just talk about white collar because I want to stick to that, okay? I don't think white collar crimes are going away anytime soon. In fact, I believe that they're on the uprise because um, people are getting more and more desperate. People are getting more and more um, greedy. Um, and, and so here's, here's, here's the thing. I was talking to an FBI agent a couple weeks ago and, uh, one of our clients gave the FBI agent a tip. Okay. Now our client is probably in something about $250,000. Okay. That's what, that's what their, that's what their crime is. We gave them a tip that would be 10 or $20 million. We gave them, uh, 75% of the information that they would need to start an investigation. Okay. We gave them everything and they said, no, thank you. And, and, and they didn't do it arrogantly. They didn't do it. Um, they didn't do it rudely. They did it. Like we don't have any people with COVID and everything being so far backed up and the federal courts being closed and state courts being closed and judges retiring and offloading their cases somewhere else and new agents coming in that need to be trained. We, we don't have capacity. Um, 
So it wasn't that they weren't interested. They were so frustrated because they didn't know how to make the process better. They didn't know how to create a program to maybe get some more bad guys off the street or maybe any sort of incentive programs to get people to cooperate more. None, none of that stuff happened. It's just this kind of, it's it's kind of like this model, you know, on the right and this model on the left, and then really no bridge in between. They don't have any idea how to bridge the gap of making it better. And so I don't see it going away. And every person that I talk to, whether it be a judge or an attorney or, you know, a, a, a woman or a man with the agency, whatever it happens to be, no one sees it getting better everybody just sees it getting more frustrating and more political and a lot more red tape. Stephanie, do you think leaders just turn into bad people because of power? So this old argument, or do you think they are good people and well-intentioned? Or do you think it's not a good question? Gosh, I feel like that would just, I feel, are we going to do a series, Chand? Like, what, are we going to do a series? I feel like that's its own podcast. Uh, okay. I believe I have thought about this from a formulaic process. I believe good people do bad things. Um, and I've proven this with my clients over and over again. I've proven this, the worst, greediest, most despicable per guy in the world who's taken millions and millions of dollars. If he was to be called about a children's foundation to feed. How much do you need? Done. Um, I I have I've proven this so many times, where where they want to do good. And and three things have happened to them. Okay, three things. Number one, they've either gotten a crap ton of mon money way way too fast. Like they've maybe didn't have money or didn't have means as a as a younger one. And then all of a sudden got millions, okay? Um, and so they don't really have a structure or an alliance group um, to walk them through the development or the process of how do you spend the money, how do you save the money, how do you, how do you go through the money thoughtfully, okay? Number two, everything that they've touched, no matter what it is from the time they started being an entrepreneur, has turned to gold. So the faucet is open. It just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming, and they rectify it in their brain as they give 30% away to X charity. So they're like, I need to make money because if I make money, everybody makes money. I take care of everybody. So that becomes kind of like a little bit of the arrogant, um, ma manic, if you will, leader, okay? And then the third one is greed, but it's greed with a cause. So um, they have been faced with something tumultuous. Um, they are a leader, again, leader, meaning their position is a leader. They may not necessarily be a human leader. Okay. They're a leader and their mother has been diagnosed with cancer and has three months to live, or their daughter has recently gotten leukemia and the special treatment is $3 million in Germany. Whatever it happens to be, it comes from a good, a good spot, but it's over kind of jumping the line, if you will, of getting them to the top. So I do believe most leaders are innately good people that have just made some really bad decisions. I only have one question for you. Will I be listed in your phone book under my real name? No, no one in my phone is in their real names, which is really hysterical because some of the names that I give, actually, Tron, this is a funny story. I'll tell you really quickly. So I was driving with my, my little one 
um, a few weeks ago and, um, he was playing a game. He was really stressed out and he was playing a game, a memory game on my phone and my phone rang and it said Batman. <laughs> and he looked at me and he goes, seriously? <laughs> and it was so funny because he was, he, he didn't know what to do because normally it's initial. Well, he was assuming it might've actually. Right. He like Batman. looked at me and his whole face was like, like he didn't know what he was like. Is this real? Is this not real? And then he's do I what answer kind of it? Track record? Do you have with your kids that they thought it was Batman? Yeah, it was pretty funny. So I, 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 you know, we explained. He had a very good lesson on metadata, <laughs> which now he's is his number one keyword. Um, but no, I mean privacy. You know, if you look at all the Jennifer Lawrence stuff or the Paris Hilton stuff, I mean those images, those numbers, those addresses, those families were because somebody lost their phone. I will never, ever set somebody up for that. So no, Batman it is. <laughs> Got it. Stephanie, I mean, you may be right. This this could be a longer conversation, but we, I think we should uh, probably then do it some other time. But uh, it's been fascinating to get a, just a little bit of a peek into a life and a business that I must say you know, it's enormously fascinating, but I don't think it's cut out for everyone. I don't think I would be very good at it, so don't hire me. Well, you know what? You would be surprised. You're pretty darn unflappable. And, and Tron, the, the unflappable comes from, again, it's not your crisis. So, right. you know, it, it's, not your, it's not your choice. Um, it, you know, the last thing I'll say to you is I was in a, I was in a room in New York City, and I was in, we were negotiating a huge deal. And I got a phone call from, from my husband saying that my daughter had been rushed to the emergency room. Hmm. And, um, and it was a, a head injury. And, you know, everything turned out okay. It was completely fine. But the six attorneys that were in the room were literally mouths open like, oh, my gosh. It was my, it was my crisis. That does not make me flappable. It's my child. It was not a choice. It was all of these different things. You don't hire me to be crazy during your, your case. You hire me to bring calm, presence, stillness, and the best, best resources possible. So you're right. It's not for everyone. But I also think that, that doing this for as long as I have, I think it's really the team that surrounds me that is the most impeccable thing about the business. Well, that's certainly a good message. The team, uh, and well, I think that is a whole other podcast because picking a team like that is, yeah. So you're exactly. leaving me with a lot of questions, but uh, we'll leave that for today. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. You have just listened to episode 129 of the Futurized podcast with host Tronarne Unheim, futurist and author. If you are interested in Trans products or services, feel free to check out futurize.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Trans books, such as Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. If you are interested in all of Trans projects, check out his website, trondentheim.com, which has links to his other podcasts as well as his public appearances. The topic of this episode was how executives handle crisis. In this conversation, we talked about what is to be defined as a business crisis, the strategics and strategies to use to best handle it, 
including the intricate and unknown backstories that unfold in executive life. My takeaway is that when I first was confronted with Stephanie, I didn't know, quite know what to think. She seemed like a real-life version of the fictional fixer Olivia Pope created by Shonda Rhimes for the political drama television series Scandal, only for executives, not for politicians. As it turns out, she is not far from that, and I can only imagine the skills needed to deal with the crisis that bring executives out of balance. What she leaves me with, and perhaps you as well, is a sense of calm in the midst of the storm. Wouldn't we all want to have a Stephanie to create that sense and capitalize on it to create a way to move on and ahead? Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 60, The Future of Royalty, Episode 43, The Future of the High Net Worth Lifestyle, or Episode 106, The Disruption of Failure. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us, and we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Yegi lets clients create multidisciplinary dream teams consisting of subject matter experts, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists who act as team leaders. Yegi's services include speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring. You can find Yegi at yegi.org. The Futurized team consists of podcast host and sound technician Tron Denheim, videographer Raoul Trevithan, and podcast marketer Naheen Hossein. Please share the show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.